Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the questions, is capitalism in crisis, and will building smarter markets be the antidote? And now, here's your host, Eric Townsend. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast made possible by a grant from Abex Technologies. I'm your host, Eric Townsend. Michelle Dennity is off this week, but you'll remember when I introduced you to Michelle that I told you we had two new hosts joining the Smarter Markets hosting team. This week, I'm pleased to introduce you to Todd Buckholtz, who will be joining Michelle as our second new host. Todd, I'm speaking to you from California today. Now, I know you used to work in the White House, so how'd you get to California? Well, you know, you work in politics, and at some point you want to run as far as you can. And I still wanted to stay on the continental on the continental United States. I actually married a Californian. I grew up on the East Coast, and then all of my nuclear family decided to move to the West Coast, so we followed. So here we are. We've got sunshine and potholes. That seems to be the future of California. Now, you served as the Director of Economic Policy at the White House. Uh, Number one, what did you learn there? But I think probably just as importantly, how does real life at the White House compare to what we see on TV in the West Wing? Uh, Is it any similarity? Well, I'll tell you, I suppose the biggest difference between the real White House and Aaron Sorkin's portrayal in the West Wing is uh, in the TV show, people were constantly walking around and talking and walking. And that, of course, is a signature of Aaron Sorkin's writing. Um, I don't remember so much walking and running. I remember there was a little bit more sitting and a little bit more standing in place. To be honest, one of the things uh, that Sorkin did successfully achieve in the West Wing was bringing together the different points of view and the different stakes and arguments. And, you know, you might not agree, and I often disagree with Aaron Sorkin's politics, but he did a pretty good job of pointing out how the lobbyists came in, what perspective they would take, whether from the left or the right or progressives or conservatives and so on. And and that does take place. And one of the things I learned at the White House which has served me well in my investment work with hedge funds and and my own personal investing, is that political leaders, prime ministers, treasury secretaries, ministers of the exchequer, need to look at issues through various lenses. So for instance, and this actually was a real situation when I served in the White House, the economy had tumbled into a real estate recession. What do you do about that? Well, first of all, you may come up with some policy idea. Let's say you want to give a tax credit for first-time homebuyers. You have to ask yourself, how is the financial market going to interpret that? Will that have an impact on interest rates? Will it have an impact on equity prices? How will it actually affect the economy? How will home builders respond? How will Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac respond? How will first-time would-be home buyers respond? But it doesn't just stop there. You can't simply stop and answer the question, the financial markets will do this, the real markets will do this. In Washington, you have other questions you must ask. How will this be portrayed in the Washington Post, on CNN or CNBC, or on the internet, or on Twitter? What are my chances of getting this proposed policy through Congress? How will the Democrats, the Republicans respond? Will there be a regional difference? Will lawmakers in California and New York on the coasts where taxes are high respond differently from those in the Midwest or places like Florida where taxes are low? So in order to figure out how policies will affect the economy and affect the country. And in order to gauge the probability of a president or prime minister choosing a policy, you need to look 
at the policy through all of those lenses. So what I learned in the White House, and I should back up and say, as a director of economic policy, my job was to bring the cabinet together in order to arm wrestle about these sorts of issues and frame the debate. So I would write the options papers for the president and we'd bring together the cabinet and then we'd have to summarize and say, well, the treasury secretary thinks this, he's opposed by the commerce secretary, the secretary of state is making this argument. That taught me how to balance those sorts of arguments so that when I moved into the investment world, Eric, I was able, I had a leg up, a kind of intuition that was developed in seeing how policy debates would turn out. And that, of course, gives you some little advantage in deciding what sort of investment strategies may pan out best. So what fascinates me is you left the White House and you went on to create a investment consulting firm where you're working with hedge fund managers who don't care about managing perceptions. They only care about the bottom line. That must have been a huge cultural shift. It is a cultural shift when you when you realize the stakes are different. At the White House and in Washington, D.C., the P&L is popularity of the president and the likelihood of reelection. Now, there's much more to it than that. I was very sincerely advocating policies, and I felt very strongly that certain ideas were better than others, and the stakes in the long run were about economic growth and jobs. But in the end, you have to recognize as a policy advocate that you are sitting at the table with a press secretary and with a political director, and their job and their focus is not necessarily to raise GDP per capita. So it's not a matter of raising GDP per capita and raising the standard of living is not important in the White House. Of course, that's what's important. But it's naive to think that the cabinet table is only there to host people who think like that. It is also there to host people whose jobs is to make sure that the political party and the president hold on to power. Now, shifting to the hedge fund world, it obviously is a different PL. And the time frame is different as well. Just think about it. A president who is who takes office and has sworn into office in January of any particular year, he has four years or she has four years to try to get reelected or or put put themselves in a position so they have a good chance of being reelected. Investment managers, portfolio managers, have vastly different among themselves time frames. Obviously, you've got day traders, you've got algorithmic traders who count the P&L within nanoseconds, and then you have long-term buy and holders. You've got the Warren Buffetts of the world. And in fact, Julian Robertson, who I admire greatly, was willing to hold on to positions even when for weeks or indeed months, the market would turn against him. So I think the, the difference is in Washington, it's about the next election. That's the time frame. When it comes to investing, each individual portfolio manager has a different time frame he or she is trying to succeed within. So, Todd, you first had your own consulting firm. You worked with some of the luminaries of the hedge fund business, from Julian Robertson to Stan Druckenmiller to Lewis Bacon. You eventually, though, went and joined Julian Robertson as managing director at Tiger. How did you get to Tiger? Julian was among our first clients. My consulting firm was called the G7 Group, and ultimately, it was sold and, and many luminaries have come out of that organization. I'm very proud of what we started. But what I found in Julian Robertson was despite his wealth, despite his success, despite his you know, nearly legendary stature within the industry, Julian was always hungry and looking for more. Not necessarily more money, although that was obviously a goal. He wanted to learn more. He wanted to find out more. Julian was the kind of guy at 60 years old with a billion dollars in the bank, was still willing to think he could learn something from some young guy who just came out of the White House. 
And so it was Julian's desire to learn that we created a, a really nice working relationship. And, and he has those who've had the opportunity to meet Julian or, or hear him interviewed occasionally. He has a very courtly, southerly uh, style about him that is ingratiating. <laughs> and his, his, his investing style, of course, there are many aspects to it. But what I really enjoyed with, was that he would set up debates among his advisors, who he knew disagreed with one another, he'd start by complimenting them. So he'd get me on the phone and he, and, and this was so far beyond what was warranted. But in his lovely Southern drawl from North Carolina, Julia would say, oh, great, Todd, the master, you know, please tell me what you think we should do about the Jagubas, the Japanese JGBs, Japanese government bonds. And I would opine and then he'd put me on hold and he'd bring in uh, one of our colleagues from the London office and he'd similarly compliment them and then invite them to, to tell me that I knew nothing about this subject and we would then have to <laughs> wrestle in front of him. And then he, of course, would choose a position based on whom he thought made the better argument or persuaded him. So anyway, that you know, that's just one style of management. Other investors have other styles, but um, certainly had served him well, and I learned a lot from the Tiger organization. What were some of the most interesting moments, uh, whether it was that format or another one, where you were pitted against people with different views on, on various macroeconomic uh, potentials or whatever you might have been looking at at the time? Yes. Well, when I, when I started with Julian, we, it was really a dramatic time in Asia and in Europe. In Europe, because the euro was just coming together. And indeed, until the adoption of the euro in January 99, there was still some doubt whether it actually happened. Uh, you may recall that the German Bundesbank was actually bitterly opposed to the euro being created. They did not want to give up the Deutschmark, which had brought stability to their country. They accused Helmut Kohl, who was the uh, premier of Germany, the chancellor of Germany, who, who was the prime mover of the euro, uh, using a, 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 a term at the time. They said uh, he didn't have mad cow disease. He had mad coal disease. Well, we had some real debates within Tiger as to whether the euro would actually happen. And from a macro point of view, your listeners will recall that prior to the euro, you had all these European currencies, the peseta, uh, the lira, and so on. And so you actually had more foreign exchange opportunities and more bond spread opportunities as various countries' economic fortunes diverged from one another. Indeed, one of the reasons for the euro's creation was to narrow the spread between Italian government bonds and German government bonds. By adopting the euro, you removed the currency risk and you allowed those spreads to collapse, which presumably was going to help was going to help Italy. Well, at this time, we at Tiger had some uh, well-known advisors, including Margaret Thatcher, uh, including Bob Dole, who had run for president in 1996. And we ended up having to debate them because Thatcher, of course, was very much opposed to the euro. She had thought that the German Bundesbankers were going to win the debate within Germany. Later, a couple of years after that, when Russia fell apart, Margaret Thatcher and Bob Dole were convinced that um, the Clinton administration Actually, Clinton administration and, and the successor, George W. Bush, was going to bail out Russia. Well, that didn't actually happen. So anyway, it was, uh, it, you know, it was a fascinating, fascinating time. We also uh, were engaged in the financial meltdown of the Asian currencies in the late 1990s. So it was a time of macro turmoil. And if you're running a hedge fund, that also means macro opportunity. Todd, you've written several books, but I think the catchiest title for any financial book ever has to be New Ideas from Dead Economists. How'd you come up with that particular title concept, and why did you write that book in the first place, which I believe was just re-released in its fourth edition from Random House? So needless to say, it's gotten a lot of attention. Yes, thank you, Eric. I, I appreciate that. In fact, uh, for this edition, Random House asked me to do the audio version. 
So I spent a lot of time this past January locked in a studio, which may have been the safest place to be given COVID, locked in a studio reading aloud the fourth edition. I wrote that book as a graduate student because I thought, first of all, there were not good books on the history of economic thought. The leading book was a book called The Worldly Philosophers by Robert Heilbronner, which was a very well-written book, very well-crafted book. But it was originally written in the 1950s in an era where socialism seemed to be winning. And the book very much reflected a socialist view of the world, that Adam Smith was uh, should be out of print, that Milton Friedman had no place in a serious economic conversation, that, well, you can imagine where it went from there. So I thought there was an opportunity actually to bring back the ideas of great economists. So what new ideas from dead economists does is take the great economists, Adam Smith and David Ricardo and John Maynard Keynes and so on, and it brings them forward to today. It takes examples from today's debates and asks, what would those great economists of the past tell us? How would Thomas Malthus's view of population and food, how would that apply today? Should we apply it to climate change and so on? Uh, what would John Maynard Keynes say about the Great Recession of 2008 uh, and the COVID uh, cessation of 2020? So that was the point of the book. And I, I'm very proud because it's frankly, it's been out for so long. I wrote it when I was such a young man that now uh, some economists who are well established serving at the Council of Economic Advisors and so on come to me and, and tell me that uh, this book helped inspire them to become economists. And I'm always aghast. And I'm like, aren't you older than I am? How is it that I could have inspired you? But anyway, I take the compliment and I'm delighted that book is still around today. Your book, The Price of Prosperity, Why Rich Nations Fail and How to Renew Them. What I find fascinating about this book, Todd, is its endorsements. You've got the left, you've got Larry Summers and Alan Blinder have great things to say, but then you've also got Larry Kudlow and Mike Boskin and Glenn Hubbard. So uh, how'd you manage to get those people to agree on anything? <laughs> Thank you. Well, first of all, I'm a nice guy. You know, I, I try to understand the other uh, the other side of things. And 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 frankly, when I wrote New Ideas from Dead Economists, and I wrote a chapter about John Maynard Keynes, whom I disagree with in many ways, I tried to give a very fair portrayal of what he was thinking and gave him credit for many ingenious insights. So I think you know some of the people I've worked with over the years, uh, both from the left and the right, acknowledge that. But also the point of the price of prosperity is that America is in trouble, that there are forces at work that affect rich nations. And this goes on through history. I detected in the price of prosperity, going back to ancient Rome, certain trends that seem to tackle countries when they are wealthy and bring them to their knees. And I think people on the left and the right, with at least within the economic sphere, understand that. So for instance, when nations become wealthy or middle class, or put it this way, when a people or a country or a nation moves from peasant to middle class status, you can almost bet that they will begin having fewer children. Fertility rates go down. That's been the story since ancient Rome. I go back to Caesar's time. And in fact, the Roman Senate passed laws trying to incentivize people to have more children because they were concerned that the population was shrinking. Well, today in industrialized countries, we see the birth rate has fallen below the replacement rate. Other things seem to take place as countries become wealthier. Debt levels begin to rise. Uh, and we see today the levels of debt in the U.S. as a result of stimulus plans, the result of COVID. We have a debt to GDP ratio higher than it was in World War II. Now, typically we would think that poor nations become indebted. Well, the fact is when you look at which countries are most indebted, that is debt as a percentage of the size of their economy, it is the wealthy nations that are more indebted than not. It's also difficult as countries become larger, more complex, and wealthier 
it's difficult to maintain a level of patriotism because we become very multilateral, multilingual, multicultural. Uh, someone who is writing software in Silicon Valley, California, probably thinks he has more in common with a coder in Mumbai than he does with someone working in a meatpacking plant outside of Denver. So how do you keep a sense of country together? So these are the sort of topics I addressed in The Price of Prosperity. Hey, I was pleased that even the public broadcasting system on their nightly report devoted an entire segment to the price of prosperity because most of us now in the United States wonder, can this country cohere? What is it that keeps us together rather than sending us far apart, indeed running apart from one another? You've written another book called Rush, and the tagline is Why We Need and Love the Rat Race. Now, seems to me like most, uh, at least the self-help books, are all saying we should relax and meditate rather than rush around. Well, that's right. I, you know, it's funny. When I wrote this book, I initially was going to write a book about happiness and about the economy. I was going to call it, I had a title. I, I like the title. It was called Tail Hunters, How Americans Are Chasing Success and Losing Their Souls. And I, I was distressed because I saw so many people racing after money, paying plastic surgeons to redo their faces, goading their kids to kick soccer balls every Saturday morning. And they all were chasing the tail end of the bell curve. They had to be richer, skinnier. They had to be the best. Well, then as I did more research, I realized that this in fact is wrong. In fact, we are by our biology, by our innate psychology driven to improve ourselves. And not only that, because of this drive to improve ourselves, we actually improve society. Just look at it this way. Back around 1900, my grandfather was born uh, in 1901 in London. The longevity, his expectation was that he would live 46 years of age. That's what was expected around 1900. Now life expectancy is over 80. In fact, just a year ago, we celebrated my wife's grandmother's 105th birthday. Uh, I, I have to tell you, uh, so grandma has a lifetime record against pandemics of two wins, no losses. She beat the pandemic of 1918 and she beat the pandemic of 2020. But the point is life expectancy has gone up dramatically. Why? Because people were driven <laughs> Uh, scientists, Jonas Salk, uh, various others driven to stay in the laboratories late at night, rushing around trying to figure out which medicines would cure cancer, which medicines would cure polio. And it is this rushing around that actually lifts the standard of living and in fact makes us feel better, not worse. Now, I'm not going to, Eric, I'm not going to lie to you and say that I don't sometimes get stressed out. I don't sometimes get angry at the guy who cuts me off on the freeway. Of course I do. But if I read simply the happiness books that tell us we just have to sit back and meditate and relax, that's a recipe for getting, well, stupid. People who retire early, for instance, become stupid. They lose IQ points. A fascinating study was done comparing senior citizens in certain European countries like France to the US and um, I believe uh, Denmark. Countries where people retire early, the population loses IQ points. The test that was done, those who administered the test simply read aloud five or six common words, car, tree, pencil. And then after some period of time, asked the subjects to repeat back. Can you remember any of those simple words I mentioned to you a few minutes ago? In countries where people retire early, they are less able to simply remember those words. So my argument in Rush is twofold. First of all, moving, acting, doing keeps you alive and makes you feel better. And secondly, it makes the country more successful and raises the standard of living 
and raises the duration of life. So that was the point. That was the point of Rush. Uh, and I got a lot of nasty emails from happiness scholars whose research is among the flimsiest things you'll find in psychology. Uh, but, um, you know, for people who are supposed to be very happy, they certainly were <laughs> adept at writing me nasty letters and emails. You also wrote a book titled New Ideas from Dead CEOs, which profiles great entrepreneurs. Can you share with us one of your favorite stories about a CEO that we might not know so well? Sure. A young kid was born in Italy, not far from Pisa, around 1870. His parents immigrate to the Bay Area outside San Francisco. His father works on a farm, works on an orchard. The kid's name is Amadeo. And uh, the kid every day likes to watch his father work the fields, manage the fields. One day, the kid's like six, seven years old. He sees his father get in an argument with a disgruntled farm worker. The boy stands, there's a witness against a tree, and he sees the farm worker raise a gun from his waistband, shoots the father on the spot. Well, the father dies. The family moves into the city of San Francisco. Now, young Amadeo, he's a smart kid. He's a whiz at math, but he won't sit still in the classroom. Today, what? They'd say he's got ADD and they'd give him Ritalin or something. Well, he quits school as a teenager and he becomes fascinated with the docks the docks where they bring in the fruits and the vegetables and the fish. And he works as a broker. And then he decides he's going to start a bank. He's 20 years old, 25 years old. He's going to start a bank. For who? There's already the Morgan Bank and and other uh, famous names. He said, I'm going to start a bank for the working class guy on the dock. Again, this is like the turn of the century around 1900. Uh, For the working class guy on the dock, they can't get a loan. They are the most dependable people in the world. The avocados show up every day at 5 a.m. The mackerel show up at 6, the salmon at 7, the tomatoes at 8, and these guys can't get a loan. They're stand-up guys. So he starts a bank. He calls it the Banca d'Italia, the Bank of Italy. Well, what happens? April 1906, the San Francisco earthquake strikes. The city is reduced to rubble. Gas mains break. Fires everywhere. The leading bankers of the day gather together on the Saturday following the earthquake, a couple days later, and they bang the gavel on the following resolution. They found the last conference room that was standing in San Francisco, and the conventional bankers representing the old guard slam a gavel on a resolution that says, we, the bankers of San Francisco, do hereby declare we are closed for six months. Six months? Well, we can't find the money. We, the vaults are too hot to touch. By the time we bring people back and establish sick, Amadeo, his last name is Giannini. Amadeo Giannini, this young banker, stands up and says, you're closed for six months? No, no. I open tomorrow. Tomorrow, Sunday, for a Catholic in San Francisco in 1906. What does he do? His bank was rubble. Well, he rolls two wooden barrels out to the wharf, slaps a plank across the top, and begins doling out credit. Many of your listeners are see maybe every Christmas time the movie It's a Wonderful Life with Jimmy Stewart, where Jimmy Stewart plays this small town banker. Well, that Jimmy Stewart character was not based on a Pennsylvania or Ohio banker. He was based on Amadeo Giannini and what Giannini did after that earthquake. He distributed credit and the city rebuilt itself. Amadeo Giannini then expanded his Banca d'Italia. He ended up funding or buying the first bonds for the uh, Golden Gate Bridge. And during the Great Depression, he was there. He changes his name of the Banca d'Italia to the Bank of America. Yes, the Bank America today began on the docks under the name the Banca d'Italia. And one other thing to point out, Eric, uh, because I I know uh, one of the things we're going to be getting into on this episode and future episodes is the question of technology. Amadeo Giannini fought the old guard. They wanted him to keep his bank closed for six months. He wouldn't have it. Every time he introduced 
a revolution, a change in the way bankers and finance should work. The old guard tried to shut him down, tar and feather him, throw him in prison. He announced extended banking hours. He said, my working class people can't get to the bank between nine and three or even nine and five. I need to be open up later. Well, the establishment bankers would not permit that. He said, I want to open on Saturdays. Oh my God, you're going to open on weekends? He began advertising lower loan rates on the radio when radio came to San Francisco. My God, you're going to lower yourself and lower the banking industry by advertising and advertising on some newfangled electronic thing you're calling radio? And then this is one of my favorite innovations of Giannini. He went on the radio and he said, ladies, meet me in the women's department of the bank. Banks were not used to lending money to women, but Giannini understood he needed to expand his customer base and his client base. He created branches throughout the state and then throughout the country. And again, each of these innovations was condemned by the establishment who wanted to stick to the old ways, the old rules, the old client relations, the old timeframes, and the old technologies. So for those reasons, Amadeo Giannini uh, is one of my favorites. Oh, one, one more thing. There was a famous bet that took place in Giannini's business. He promised that he would never become a millionaire. Well, what do you know? The Bank of Italia becomes the Bank of America, begins spreading around the country. Well, later in life, his accountant comes to him and he says, AP, he was then known by his initials, AP, AP, you are a liar. Look at this ledger. You are a millionaire. Do you know what Giannini did at that point? He takes out his personal checkbook and establishes a charitable foundation for $500,000. So when the founder of the Bank of America dies, he leaves an estate of about half a million dollars. Now that it was a great deal of money at the time, no doubt, but nothing like what we see at the trough today among so many uh, gods and goddesses of Wall Street. So for those reasons, I love the Giannini story found in New Ideas from Dead CEOs. Now, most authors of nonfiction stick to nonfiction, but you've also managed to write a novel about a crazy hedge fund CEO. And that novel is called The Castro Gene. What led you to write that? And is there any similarity between this fictional CEO and anyone that you might have encountered in the uh, hedge fund industry in your time there? Oh, that, that's a great question. Well, first of all, I, I would not say any of my former clients or good friends were the megalomaniacs that um, Paul Tremont was. He's the the bad guy uh, in the Castro gene. But I'll tell you, here's what inspired me. I had mentioned earlier uh, in our discussion, Eric, the creation of the euro and the fact that Helmut Kohl, the chancellor of Germany, was really the prime mover for the euro. He thought by adopting one currency, Europe would never again have a war within itself because they're incentives and relations. They would be too closely aligned to take arms against one another. If it weren't for Helmut Kohl, the euro would not have happened. At the time, the euro was coming into being in the late 1990s. The value of Italian bonds, French bonds, and, and, and German bonds were coming together. Interest rates were converging. And I thought at that time, can you imagine if you had a hedge fund megalomaniac who was so greedy and so evil that he would bet against the creation of the euro at the last minute and then have Helmut Kohl assassinated? Because if Helmut Kohl had died, even a couple of weeks before the euro was created, the euro would not have come to being. The Italian lira would have dropped precipitously and billions and billions could have been made. So that's that, that hypothetical came to my mind. And I thought, you know what? I think I can write a novel, not about the euro and not about home at coal, but a different subject. But with the point being that if a hedge fund uh, portfolio manager had enough money and enough of the devil in him 
he could try to create a bigger fortune through assassination or other evil deeds. So I was uh, I was quite pleased with how the Castro gene came out. It, it's it's um, the main character is a young guy uh, who is actually an ex boxer. I've always been a boxing fan, so it was fun to create that character. And the novel is a little bit like a um, John Grisham novel, similar to The Firm, for instance. So it's in print. I encourage people to buy it, read it, take it to the beach, but don't partake in any evil deeds as a result of reading the book. Now, in addition to your fiction and nonfiction writing, you've also offered some of your own original ideas on policy over the years. So I'd like to move on now and ask you about a few of those. One of them was an article that you wrote called Crumbling Infrastructure or Crumbling Cliché. Uh, Seems to me like infrastructure is kind of relevant with President Biden proposing trillions of dollars of spending on it. What was that article about? You know, Eric, America's infrastructure has been crumbling ever since George Washington crossed the frozen Delaware on a leaky boat. This seems to be a bipartisan truth. Democrats and Republicans always have to say the infrastructure is crumbling. And it's true. We hit potholes. We have delays. We have to all of that is true. But when you actually want to look at facts, you see that the number of bridges that are deemed poor has actually fallen by about 20 or 25% in the last 10 years. And secondly, I developed in this article a concept I called infrastructure load. And that's the question of, are more goods and services being delivered on time? And let me just put it this way, bluntly. If the infrastructure is so bad, how is it that at this moment, while speaking to you, I can push buy on Amazon and get myself a quart of milk delivered to my house within an hour or two or maybe three? This was unheard of in past eras. Unheard of. Think about all the delivery that's taken place in the past year almost instantaneously. And that's now before drones have been fully engaged. So the idea that the infrastructure is crumbling, there is some truth to that, but I think it's overhyped. You know, I I live in San Diego. San Diego cut the ribbon just, I think, 2018 on a new garage, a parking garage that cost $128 million. Well, before COVID, before COVID, when the airport's were buzzing, that garage was empty or half empty. Why? Because of Uber, because of Lyft, because high school kids are not getting driver's licenses and people are being dropped off. Um, We have an infrastructure that should not be defined simply as a road or a bridge. There's much more to that. The amount of goods and services that we are sending to and fro is far beyond what was imagined even five years ago. So I think, therefore, these politicians have been too caught up in cliches and, frankly, not caught up enough in the facts of the matter. Again, I'm not saying there aren't problems, and and I've got certain ideas on, on how to help fund new infrastructure. But I think we have to take a a realistic view, and it's just astounding to me that nearly everybody who lives in America during COVID learned how easily they can get things delivered to them. And yet at the same time, their politicians are trying to tell them they need $3 billion of spending uh, in order to get things delivered. You know, it's fascinating. I I have a similar view myself, although it, it maybe comes at it from a different angle, which is I think the problem that we have with infrastructure is that the public discussion is just out of touch with reality to such an extent that we're never going to focus on what's important. What we really need to be doing is looking at how we're going to truly have renewable energy that solves the, the climate crisis and really delivers an electrified economy. And that means rebuilding the electric grid, something that very few people are willing to even discuss in public policy conversations, because it's so expensive to do it right. Most people don't understand it. And it's not something that anybody with a lot of votes to make is just waiting to hear, oh boy, you're going to modernize the electric grid. We need to think about how to embrace a nuclear renaissance that may be necessary. We need to think about a 
serious investment in geothermal electricity generation as a strategy for eliminating fossil fuel dependence. I don't hear any of the important stuff being discussed in this whole infrastructure debate. Instead, the question is, is the next unnecessary bridge going to be built with a whole bunch of pork barrel money in my jurisdiction or in the other senator's jurisdiction? And let's fight about that. And nobody, as far as I can tell, is even focused on solving real problems that will strategically improve the condition of the nation for decades to come. Am I just a cynic or is there some reality (laughs) to the, the way that the situation is unraveled? There are many, I guess this is a pun, I don't know whether it's a pun or just sticking with the metaphor. There are many potholes in the way of getting things done. So for instance, when President Obama uh, took office and wanted to stimulate the economy and he talked about, quote, shovel-ready projects for infrastructure, well, it turned out those shovel-ready projects ended up being about 6% of the stimulus spending. So instead of shovels, they were like teaspoons. But even if you do allocate the money, a remarkable article was written by Larry Summers, former Treasury Secretary. Larry Summers, up until two months ago, was generally a fan of stimulus, a span of uh, fiscal expansion. He's become much more skeptical about it because he thinks the Biden stimulus is far too great. But Larry who is in favor of lots of infrastructure spending in principle, wrote a fascinating essay in the Boston Globe. He lives in Boston. He teaches at Harvard, where he talked about how it took five years and $5 million simply to repair a 200-foot bridge in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Now, he pointed out in his article, the bridge was built in 1911, and it only took 11 months. And yet, in... 2018, 2019, it took five years just to do some repairs. It was only 200 feet. Why? Because unions got involved. The not in my backyard mentality got involved. So even if you say, let's spend the money and do this, actually getting it done is a whole other story. Now, I don't want to digress too much into human psychology, but you mentioned the fact that uh, the electricity grid is not exciting. It's not a sexy topic. That really is a problem in policy. Just making an analogy here, biologists and psychologists have discovered, and this is sensible to us, that human beings like animals that have certain characteristics. We like animals that are furry, that have large eyes, because we think they're cute. And so therefore, we're far more willing to raise money for animals or even insects, praying mantises that look cool to us than we are for tarantulas or oyster crackers, fish that look ugly. So, So we are attracted to certain people. We're attracted to certain animals. And we neglect those that don't psychologically appeal to us. Likewise, it's really hard to get people excited about the grid. And it's much easier to have a ribbon cutting ceremony for a new bridge to nowhere. About 10 years ago in the Wall Street Journal, you called for the government to issue 100 year treasury bonds. Why that recommendation? Well, there's no doubt we're deeply indebted. The treasury should be locking in interest rates for lifetimes to come unimaginably low interest rates today of 10-year treasury at 1.65%, we should be issuing 100-year bonds and locking them in and doing a favor to our grandchildren. Now, you might ask, who possibly ever would buy a 100-year bond in the U.S.? Well, the fact is, Mexico has issued 100-year bonds. The Netherlands has issued 100 year bonds. Some universities, University of Pennsylvania, Ohio State, 100-year bonds, Yale, 100-year bonds. Private companies have issued 100-year bonds. Disney issued bonds, they call them sleeping beauty bonds, and they were snapped up immediately. Get this, Norfolk and Southern Railroad, a railroad, was able to auction off 100-year bonds. Now, 
will there be rails in a hundred years or will we be, maybe we'll be flying like the Jetsons, who knows? But the idea that investors were willing to put their money down for a hundred year bonds from a railroad, Mexico, Disney means there is a market for that. And if we, the US could lock in those lower rates, it would be an enormous favor to our grandchildren. The average duration of US debt today is about five to six years. In Britain, it's 15 years. So if you think that interest rates are going to be substantially higher five years from now, and I hope they're higher than 1.65%, because that would suggest that we're back in a recession, the government should be taking aggressive action on the bond auction front. You know, this is a fascinating topic because you look at the 2008 crisis. What happened there? Well, a whole bunch of residential home buyers didn't understand financing concepts very well, and they found themselves becoming shorter duration borrowers. They, they were borrowing with a shorter maturity, meaning that they would have to roll over those adjustable rate mortgages. And when they rolled over, the price went way up. They weren't ready for it, and it caused a crisis. What lesson did we as a nation learn from that experience? Well, what we actually did as a nation was to dramatically shorten the U.S. government's average debt maturity, essentially repeating the mistake, or at least that's the way I see it, repeating the mistake that all of those borrowers made that got them into so much trouble. Now we're doing it for the whole country. And it, it sounds to me like you made this argument for the 100-year bond expressly because you see the same thing that I do, which is we're going in the wrong direction here in terms of public policy. Well, we, we certainly are going in the wrong direction. And you might ask, well, why wouldn't the government take this up? It's, you know, free money, sort of. If you compare 1.65% to the likelihood that 10-year rates five years from now might be three, four, five, six, seven percent, it's almost free money in that sense. Well, here's the here's the the issue for the Treasury. If you issue, say, hundred-year bonds, the interest rate will be substantially higher than the interest rate on a five-year note. That means in the short term now, interest payments on the debt will go up and it will make the deficit look worse. So politicians in office now do not want to take action that will make the deficit look worse in the near term, even if it delivers untold bargains 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years from now. So that's the short-term thinking problem that we have in Washington, D.C. Now, before the COVID crisis set in, you said that the U.S. economy had a dirty little secret, that the U.S. was benefiting from a recession in the rest of the world. How's that? <laughs> yes, uh, it is a dirty secret. When I taught economics at, at Harvard and lectured at Cambridge, I always would use the usual talk about no man is an island in itself. We're all interrelated. Uh, multilateral trading so important. And that is all true. But the U.S. is such a massive domestic economy with 330 or 50 million consumers that we alone among countries are able to grow strongly even if the rest of the world economy is in recession. Think about it this way. U.S. economy exports are roughly 12% of GDP. For Canada, Germany, and other big trading partners, it's double that or triple that. We are less beholden to international trade. Now, that doesn't mean international trade is not good, not important. It is good and important. But what the phenomenon that we quote, enjoyed, unquote, prior to COVID was that the rest of the world economy was more or less in a recession. We were growing at 3% and Europe was growing by one point something percent. That kept world interest rates at rock bottom. That meant even though prior to COVID in February of 2020, the unemployment rate in the US was near a record low, the unemployment rate among various ethnic groups, Blacks and Hispanics were at record lows. The U.S. borrower, U.S. individual consumers could still borrow at almost zero. 
you could go into the Apple store or the AT&T or Verizon store and buy an Apple iPhone on credit at 0%. You could walk into your auto dealer and buy a new car and get credit at nearly 0%. Mortgage rates, 4% or so. That would not have been the case if the rest of the world were growing as fast as the U.S. So for a multi-year period, the U.S. consumer, the home buyer, the car buyer, the phone buyer, were benefiting enormously. And equity investors were benefiting because the rest of the world was almost flat on their backs, which kept world interest rates at record lows. That was the dirty secret because we're not supposed to say aloud that the pain in the rest of the world could somehow benefit the U.S. economy. You know, I'm fascinated also by the fact that beyond your investing work in liquid markets, you've also found the time to make some investments in theater, Broadway specifically. You were one of the producers of the hit show Jersey Boys. So why did you get involved in, in that? Is this a, a new direction or just a hobby? Are you doing more of it? What, what's the plan? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, it's not that difficult to get involved in investing in Broadway because they'll take your money. And they'll run with it, and your show will close on opening night. Uh, so that that's not throwing away money is not is has never been very difficult anywhere, and it's certainly not difficult to do in the world of theater. I became involved in in Jersey Boys because I saw it being incubated. It was actually incubated at a theater in San Diego called La Jolla Playhouse. And in fact, my wife is the managing director of that theater, and that theater has incubated some of the greatest hits on on Broadway, Billy Crystal's one-man show, Memphis, a show called Come From Away, and so on and so forth. So they were creating Jersey Boys. And I sat in, I read the script before it was even rehearsed. And then I saw how it was being designed. And a couple factors I think your audience might find of interest. Um, it was It's the music of Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. Okay. I knew some of that music. It was not you know, on my top of my Spotify list, but I knew some of the music. But here is the more important point. At that time, it was 2005 when that musical was born, or 2003, 2004. If you ask yourself what cultural icons were becoming most popular, it was cultural icons from the early 1960s. Now, this was a little before my time, the, the, the 1960s, but what cars were being auctioned off at the biggest premium? It was muscle cars from the 1960s. It was nostalgia from the 1960s. Basically, the baby boomers in 2003, 2004 were kind of commanding the stage when it came to culture. And so it was their likes that made me think, you know what? A musical based on music from that era that taps into that. Also, Jersey Boys is essentially about Frankie Valli and the Mafia. At that time, the biggest hit on TV was The Sopranos. So the uh, And by the way, Frankie Valli, like The Sopranos, was from New Jersey. So the idea that uh, a story about Italian hoodlums from the 1960s who would drive muscle cars could become a hit on Broadway with music that already had a track record, that w appealed to me. And there are many other factors as it was coming into being. And so I decided to take out my my check checkbook and become a part of that enterprise. And it's actually still going despite COVID, it's going to open up again on Broadway and open up again in London in a couple of months or probably in, in the fall, I should say. So that's how I got involved. And I've got a couple other projects underway as well. Now, you've also been involved in mathematics education, and you're the president of an education technology company that makes a popular mathematics app for kids called Kyle Counts. It's based on something called the Math Arrow. Tell us more. Yes. Um, I have three daughters, and I tried to help them with arithmetic and math when they, when they were younger. And I didn't really like the tools that were used for young kids. You think about uh, the number line, which goes, starts, it's got a zero in the middle and an infinity going to the left, negative numbers, to the right, positive numbers. And it just goes on and on. Or think of the hundreds chart, which is just this 10 by 10 matrix. Kids get lost in that. They, it's hard to find your bearings. It's like looking at a roadmap 
that doesn't have any cities, any demarcations that tell you where you are at any time. So I actually devised and patented a new matrix of numbers called the math arrow. It's a zigzag pattern. You can Google it. I think there's maybe a Wikipedia entry for the math arrow or the Buckholz arrow, Wikipedia might call it. And it makes numbers intuitive to children. So based on that, a couple partners and I developed some iPad apps with cartoon characters, Kyle the kangaroo and Kira the kangaroo and kids. And it's aimed at kids, say, ages three and a half to eight, say, can play various games. And there was a study done at a major research university that showed that playing the game for just a week raised test scores among first graders by more than a statistically significant amount. So I'm very proud of Kyle Counts. You can find it at the App Store. Uh, And the Math Arrow, if you don't want to buy an app, that's fine. You can just Google it and you can use it for free, print off a PDF or something and help your children. Because, you know, in the end, Eric, when people ask what's the most important economic issue It's not what Jay Powell is going to do about interest rates. It's not how much money Joe Biden is going to spend. In the end, the most important economic issue is education. And Winston Churchill in World War II turned to Franklin Roosevelt and said, give us the tools and we will do the job. Well, we got to give our kids the tools to do the job because they are competing in the most hyper-competitive economic environment any human being has ever lived through. And my contribution with the Math Arrow and Kyle Counts is to help give kids a new tool, a new tool so that they will have a better opportunity to learn arithmetic, to get into mathematics, and to survive and hopefully thrive in this competitive world of ours. Todd, as you know, Michelle Dennity has joined the Smarter Markets hosting team because we're trying to expand this podcast to bring a broader perspective of people with different backgrounds as interviewers. And of course, Michelle's background is being something of an activist in the area of digital privacy. You've clearly got both a policy and macroeconomics background. Do you want to tell our audience a little bit more about what they can expect in coming weeks in terms of what type of interviews you'll be bringing them? Yes. Well, we're going to be looking, of course, at the macro forces underway. This is a tumultuous time with stimulus plans and possible competitive devaluations in the future. Among our first interviews will be with Arjun Murthy, who is on the board of ConocoPhillips and retired as a partner at Goldman Sachs. We'll have a good talk about energy markets and commodities. And the general question, are we about to launch inflation into the atmosphere or stratosphere? Uh, So many topics to speak of, and I hope your audience finds it interesting and tunes in. Todd, thanks so much for a terrific interview. Listeners, next week, Todd will be hosting Smarter Markets, and his first guest will be Stefan Weiler, head of markets analysis at Axpo Solutions. Axpo Solutions is the trading origination arm of Axpo Group, Switzerland's largest energy utility and a major player in the European energy space. Stefan and his team cover the entire spectrum in energy markets, from European power to natural gas, liquefied natural gas, liquefied propane gas, carbon emissions, and petroleum. Stefan has over 20 years' experience in the commodity space, including a role as executive director and senior petroleum analyst at Goldman Sachs, head of research for New York-based commodities hedge fund, BBL Commodities, and acted as head of commodity research at Julius Baer in Zurich. He's also on the board of directors of Gold Money, a company co-founded by Avex CEO Josh Crum and one of the largest precious metals custodians in the world. Listeners, please help us get the word out about Smarter Markets. It's not every day you come across a podcast with guests on the caliber you've heard here on Smarter Markets, and we have a veritable who's who of commodities and technology legends lined up for interviews in coming weeks. Your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and other podcast platforms mean the world to us, as does your help spreading the word about Smarter Markets via word of mouth. On behalf of Abex Technologies, I'm Eric Townsend. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. 
For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets.